You want us to sing the second one? Sing the second one. the best one. What is the best one? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus and pardons. Do that chorus again. Sing one like you did with Lou Okay.
comes up, we'll bring it to our devotion. Well, good thing. Come on up, Brother John. Help him, Lord. Thank you very much. <laughs> Time seems slow when you're waiting. Time seems swift if you're afraid something's going to happen. Time seems long if you're grieving. Time seems short when we're rejoicing. James 4.14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. Looking back, life is short, isn't it? Yes, amen. The older we get, the shorter it seems, doesn't it? We do not have innumerable days as we thought years ago, do we? Our lives here on earth truly are a vapor. I'm going to talk about my testimony, and, and my testimony won't be as exciting as Bobby's and, and the preacher's. I was a good little boy. <laughs> my problem was not hearing the gospel. As a youth, I struggled spiritually, and I wandered from the truth while I faithfully attended church with my family. We attended an old metropolitan Methodist church in Western Birmingham. Church was established in 1884. The three-story brick building, the steeple seemed to rise to the heavens. The huge stained glass windows were beautiful biblical scenes. The huge, magnificent pipe organ reached from the choir loft to the top of the vaulted ceilings. The dark oak pews were padded with scarlet velvet for comfort. Singing of the sturdy old hymns of praise and faith were sung by choir members. Some of them were paid to sing. The Thanksgiving and Christmas pageants and Easter services were magnificent. And the church-wide family camps were so enjoyable. Everything was just perfect. But the preaching was not inspiring. The doctrine was thin. 
and the historic and the scientific and the moral infallibility of the Word of God was not believed and preached. My greatest hindrance to believe in the gospel was getting to hear it. Not lives poorly lived. Those around me were living good, even exemplary lives. The hindrance was a religious hindrance. It was mentioned by Paul. Paul said he knew some people who had a zeal for God, but Paul said their zeal was not according to knowledge because they were ignorant of God's righteousness and therefore going about to establish their own righteousness by means of their good works. I had never read John 6, 28, 29 where Christ clearly speaks what the work of God is. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Amen. Nor had I read Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now I'm telling you things I had never heard at that time in my life, nor had I read Romans 10.3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Nor had I read Galatians 2.21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. But I was being taught that I must be good and that I must do good to be found acceptable and, and favored by God and to attain eternal life. To justify Christ's existence in their works gospel they taught me that if I would invite Christ into my heart and life, He would enable me to live a good life and do good works. No one had ever talked to me about being accepted in the Beloved. Most of the preaching was from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, but very little from the resurrected Christ message to Paul the Apostle. I had never read Paul's letter to the believers at Rome much less the seventh chapter. I had no knowledge or understanding of the filthy rag status of my own righteousness. All I needed to do was tell them I believe their good works gospel and they, not the Spirit, would confirm me as a brand new Christian before the entire congregation. So, I did. And they did. One Sunday morning at age 12, they laid their empty hands on my empty head. And I, along with all the other 12-year-olds in my Sunday school class, was confirmed and sprinkled with water from the River Jordan. Yeah, didn't mean anything. And at this time, this was in the 1950s, the Methodist denomination was going through the early stages of the uh, liberal 
social gospel versus the fundamental uh, conservative uh, message. It was a problem in their literature, their doctrine, their theology. But I was reading and studying Sunday school literature. I was attending every morning, evening, uh, midweek service. I was attending the morning watch services at my high school. But guess what I was not reading? The Bible. I was living that up and down, flickering torch, sinking sand, help, I believe, helped by my unbelief life that so many young people live. I was not secure, and they could not help me. They were not secure. The number one conflict with those Baptists over there on the other street, that's the way they referred to them, was the once saved, always saved security issue. When I asked my adult teachers and leaders how I could be sure that I was going to heaven when I died, they told me I could not be sure. That we could only keep the Ten Commandments and hope that we lived a good enough life that upon death we would qualify to live with Him forever. That didn't give me the spirit calming inner peace that I was looking for, that I needed, that everybody needs. So, in my mind, my hope had been firmly established not on the finished work of God in Christ, but upon my works. That's where I was. Now, this was not good news to me because I was already familiar with something that Christ said about thinking about the sin being as bad as committing the sin, and I couldn't control my thoughts. I had yet to develop the habit of reading and studying the Word for myself, and the church literature was liberal, social, gospel fluff. So I believed that I was His, but not that He loved me as I was. And that therefore, I was bound to live out my life performing in His presence, always hoping that I could earn His conditional love and eternal acceptance. They taught me a lot about Jesus loving us, but not a lot about us loving Him. And no wonder that they couldn't teach that because how can you love someone who stops loving you when your performance doesn't meet his expectations? Is it me he loves or my dutiful works? I began to walk by their laws, their rules, their regulations, scoring myself in my own mind, doing good but dead works, a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones, is that how it goes? At this point in my life, the simplicity that is in Christ was hopelessly complicated. The light that I imagined having inside was really darkness. How great that darkness was. There had never been a transformation or a renewing of my mind. Not only was I unable to receive the meat, I had never received the milk. But this began to change. Because of the concern and influence of a few close school friends, I began visiting that Baptist church over there on the other street. <laughs> Everyone there was carrying a Bible. The singing was different. The songs were full of theology and scriptural truths. It's like 
pure sunlight coming through the clouds. And when the choir and the congregation sang, it was with a passion like they meant every word. And the preaching was unlike any I had ever heard, like the preacher was talking only to me. And the singing seemed to unite all the generations with hope and encouragement. I knew things were not right in my heart, and I was drawn to attend there more and more in my home church, less and less. And I began through the preaching and the teaching and the witness of friends to study and feed on His Word like never before. I began to get a deeper and fuller understanding of the meaning and the power of the cross in the hidden depths of my heart. I began to see things I could not unsee and to understand truths that would not let me go. The healing of my soul had begun. I began to understand that the law I was trying to keep was a curse and that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law. I began to hear things that I'd never heard before and as Peter said about Paul's words, hard to understand. Things like, Jesus loved me when I was without strength, unlovely, defiled, learned, and his enemy. Things like, Jesus loved me not when I performed satisfactorily, but when I was a reproach yes. and my performance sent him to hell. Right. Things like, no matter how I may appear in my own sight or in the sight of others, he sees in me what no man can see as I begin to walk with him. Amen. Things like, I am forgiven and loved for his name's sake alone, not for anything I have done, am doing, or will do without any merit on my part. Things like, if I'm a believer, loving Jesus is not something I will do. It is something I cannot help but do. Having Jesus is more than all the sacrifices or offerings of the law. So, I began to attend that Baptist church over there on the other street. And my home church less and less. Not only did I hear the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ preached from the pulpit by Pastor Bill Burkett and great visiting pastors like R.G. Lee and W.A. Criswell, but also from individuals young and old. I listened to hundreds of those young and old people loudly and enthusiastically singing dozens of songs that at that time were unfamiliar to me, which they took for granted. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less. I know whom I have believed. I didn't know these songs. There is power in the blood. Face to face. Christ receiveth sinful men. What a day that will be. Oh, how I love Jesus, and many, many more. Although I could not sing, and still can't, I love the singing. I have been, I think I've told this to some others, I've, I've been told that if my singing talent was Lord, I would not have enough degrees of skilling. <laughs> Even though I could not sing 
the kind youth choir director invited me to join the youth choir and travel on the choir tours with them. That was a big thing with the young people. But he asked me to travel as a silent singer. <laughs> there were several of us. <laughs> Even though I could not sing, I went on those choir tours. And one night, on one of those southern summer tours, the Holy Spirit finished making His work of Christ real to me. Little by little, or as the Scripture says, line upon line, precept upon precept, the Holy Spirit took testimony of the Word of God. And there on that dark moonlit night, around that big campfire, on the beach at Gulf Shores, the things of earth grew strangely dim as the Holy Spirit began to form Christ before my eyes. That night, a night I shall never forget, something happened, and then I knew the Holy Spirit came into the darkness of my heart and turned the light on. I prayed a silent prayer with understanding, and I thank the eternal lover of my soul for rescuing me from the eternal consequences of my sin and sins. By faith, worked by the Word of God in me, this Jesus, who hung at Calvary in my place, who descended into hell as God's complete satisfaction for my sin, who presented His own blood on God's altar for my eternal redemption, who sat down on the right hand of God to be my interceding high priest until he comes for me. This Jesus was becoming my personal Savior. Amen. He became as real to me as John of old who actually saw him and heard him and touched him. And as I surrendered, the chains came off, my heart dissolved, and before the campfire died down, I was a new creature. Amen. I became His. He became mine. Forever safe in the arms of Jesus. Amen. God had called me by name and now I was His. The following week I was baptized in the church baptistry with chlorinated water from Lake Purdy. <laughs> that time it worked. I wanted to let everyone know I'd been transformed. I said he's real to me. Sometimes he's so real, I can almost touch him. There are times when his voice seems to ring in my ears and times when I think I can hear his footsteps walking beside of me. But just as true is the fact that sometimes he can seem as unreal as a name in a history book and as far removed as when, we walk, as when he walked the shores of Galilee 2,000 years ago. And this has nothing to do with him, but with me and my attitude and my relationship to the Word of God. When the Word becomes alive in my heart, I can hear his voice calling me. Sure. And let, me let me explain that. At home, beneath my desk, there's a box of 132 love letters written by my now deceased aunt and uncle to one another while he was stationed overseas in the U.S. Air Force during World War II. This was how they maintained 
their loving relationship while he was gone, so long and so far away. Through those written words, she knew he was hers, and he knew she was his. They hid each other's words in their hearts until he returned for his bride. In the same sense, in the same sense that a letter from one's lover until he returns is one's relationship with her lover, so is the written word, Christ's love letter to us, his bride, our relationship to him until he returns for us. Amen. How could we not hold it close and read it and reread it over and over? Reading the Word of God has been one of the most rewarding things I have ever done. I wished I had started earlier in life and read it more. How about you? Revelations 19.13 makes the statement, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Scriptures testify that Christ is the Word incarnate, or the Word made flesh. So I repeat, our relationship to the written Word of God is our relationship to Jesus, the eternal lover of our souls, until he returns for us. How firm a foundation is a hymn that for over two centuries has assured believers of the faithfulness of Christ and the certainty of our hope. The first verse says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? I now find it difficult to understand how we can be homesick for a place we've never been. Don't you? <laughs> We're not waiting on death or fulfillment of prophecy, are we? We're waiting on Jesus in the last trump. He has pulled the stinger out of death for those of us who have believed. Sure. So, before we take another step, before this breath of air leaves our lungs. Before our hearts beat one more time. Even before the next twinkling of our eyes. He may call our names again. And then our weak faith, on which we so strongly rely, will fall by the wayside as it is replaced by sight of our Savior. For the first time, we shall see him as he is, and ourselves and others as we are, and we will be able to say, we would not have seen it if we had not believed it. I was living proof that much of the religious world has capped the overflowing well of living water with their good works and self-righteousness, ignoring what Isaiah said. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. This truth was my path to freedom. Only the truth enabled me to tear down those strongholds of false ideas, opinions, and thought patterns. The battle 
was in my mind. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's great love can only be manifested to others that is revealed to them by us. Everybody needs unconditional love that needs starts at birth and never lets up. I learned that God's plan for establishing our righteousness far exceeds our plans. Our plans is the good works. His plans was a sacrifice. He has more invested in righteousness than we do because he sacrificed his only son to establish our righteous standing before him. I learned through the spirit that dwells in these temples that our father is in earnest about the final redemption of the possessions he has purchased with the precious blood of his own son. I learned that God and Christ rejoice in the presence of angels over every soul saved. Luke 15, 10 says, Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Somebody in the presence of the angels is rejoicing when the sinner gets saved and it's God in Christ. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair. Think of the most beautiful morning you can remember when all of your world was bright and fair and then try to comprehend eternal. The idea of such a morning lasting forever and we who have believed being there. Where is the song leader? There we are. Uh, my, my testimony was from sinking sand to the solid rock, and I would like for us to sing the solid rock. And if y'all don't mind, I'll just be a silent singer. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all stand together. Look at page 526. Man. 526. <laughs>